Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're here this morning. I'm just going to jump right to it. Grab these notes. We're in Genesis 3. We're going to talk about the fall. But even as a small child, you heard this nursery rhyme, let us say it together. That's why I've entitled our message, Humpty Dumpty or Reverse the Curse. Here we go. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Simple nursery rhyme, but what we're dealing with today is a fall that had rippling effects that we've felt for, the fi- for generations, yay, thousands of years. And Genesis 3 answers so many questions for us. For instance, how do we go from a sinless paradise in chapters 1 and 2 to this debacle in chapter 3? This is how sin enters humankind. Does that sin of Adam and Eve affect us, or is there a workaround? What about those consequences? What were they to, for all of mankind, not just for Adam and Eve? How does it affect relationships today, especially in marriage? We're going to find out all of that in our text this morning. So let's jump in and, and get to it. The first uh, point is there's a conversation in verses 1 to 6. And we see a tempter in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, this is an idyllic setting. It's paradise. We don't know anything about this serpent that seems to be off in this text. But we do know by knowing what's at the end of the book in Revelation 12.9, this serpent is who? The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was cunning. He's always been cunning. In fact, before the fall, before creation, Lucifer was his name, the star of the morning. If you've read Isaiah 5 uh, or Isaiah uh, 14, verses 12 to 15, you see the five I wills of Satan. His name today, Satan, adversary or devil, which means disruptor. That's who it is. And in some perverse way, He possesses this serpent in this conversation that you're about to look at. And so what Satan is attempting to do is not God move over, let's share leadership. It's God move out. I want to be the boss. Well, that didn't work for him. As you know, he was cast out of heaven with a third of the angelic host. All that predates all that we're talking about. So what's his tactic? Verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, do you find it remarkable that Eve is talking to an animal? Now, we know Adam named animals, but uh, we're not particularly bothered by that. We know in other passages that Moses talks to a burning bush and vice versa. And so we don't know if animals talk before the fall, but Satan does what I think is predictable. He has the same tired tactics and the same tactics he uses today. What does he do? I'm going to suggest to you there are three things if you're taking notes. Number one, he creates doubt. He creates doubt. He didn't misunderstand God's command. In fact, the command was not confusing. It was not complex. It wasn't ambiguous. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 says what? He says, You can enjoy everything in the garden. Satan says, you can't touch, you can't eat any of the trees. 
See, he added to God's prohibition. And there was one simple rule. Don't what? Eat of the fruit from what tree? The tree of the knowledge of, a, of good and evil. And so he challenges that. He, ex, he exaggerates it. He distorts it. Secondly, he challenges God's word. Not this written word, but his spoken word. And so I think sometimes we, we do the same thing. We question what God's saying to us, and, and Satan plays into that for us. And certainly Satan did that with Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And then he critiques God's character. He essentially accuses God of being a what? A liar, right? John 8. Did he actually say that? He's kind of playing a word play there. Did he really mean that? And do we wonder if that still happens today? Don't we kind of sometimes succumb to that thinking where we're dealing with doubt? Now, before I get too much farther... I don't think Satan is actually messing with you specifically and personally. We know there's a spiritual realm. Uh, I think probably Satan has bigger fish to fry than you, but this is the beginning of mankind, and so he's going to definitely poke his nose into this. And, and we know that some of folks think that there's nothing going on in the spiritual realm, and there's people who think, oh, man, there's a demon behind every door. We believe in some, a middle ground on that, and uh, I think you know that from our teaching. But here's how I think it plays out today. Young person, you get this in your mind like, oh, like I don't have to wait till marriage to have sexual relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend. God says, wait. Satan goes, did God say really wait? Or you only have to wait until you're sure that you, that you love the person. You see how easy it would be our mind to twist that. Or, no, I'm going to fudge a bit on my taxes because Lord knows Government's taken way too much of my money already, right? Or how about, somebody said amen to that. Um, well, if God loves me, well, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? What kind of God is that? And we believe that lie. Little pinpricks of doubt. Or one in this passage that some have to deal with is, I don't buy this. Talking snakes, and this is a fable, right? I mean, you can't really trust God's word. There's errors. Can we really buy into all of this? And so he creates doubt. He challenges God's word. He critiques God's character. Well, there's a twist in the story. Look at verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that the tree is in the middle of the garden. She knew the name, by the way. Neither shall you what? touch it. She does the same thing, but she adds to it. She not doesn't just twist it. She adds to the, the prohibition. Again, one simple rule. Don't eat it. Not don't touch it, lest you die. Now, it is the age of innocence, so I don't know if she even understands what dying means completely in this context, but she's going to correct his false news, right? And so she adds to the rule, and the question you might ask yourself is, why did God even have the rule? Why would he put it out there uh, in such a way that it might have been a temptation? Why does he do that? Let me give you a principle about God's rules and commands in the Bible. God's commands to us are always for our provision and our protection. And so the problem is sometimes when we're going through it, 
we don't understand why did this event happen? Or why did God say that? Or why did God allow that? Certainly, we've asked those questions this week, haven't we? When just thinking about little JJ. And yet, we know that ultimately, God's sovereignty and His laws are for our provision and our protection. And he said, and by the way, I'm holding up an apple. It was the apple, right? That's what she ate out of? Well, we don't know. It just says it's fruit. I personally think it might have been a pomegranate because, man, if you've ever eaten a pomegranate and you get it on you, it stains you. It's hard to get out, just like the sin of stain or the stain of sin, easy for me to say, um, <laughs> is hard. We can't remove it sometimes from, by ourselves. Now, there's a trick in verses 4 and 5. There's a little tennis match, a little verbal jousting going on here. Now the serpent comes back, verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You can see he's almost saying it with dripping sarcasm. Oh, yeah, you're going to (laughs) die? He might as well have said, loser. Of course you're not. Put your thinking caps on, Eve. For God knows that when you eat eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he totally downplays the consequence of the choice, which we know there is a consequence uh, to sin in Romans 3.23 and 6.23. And he essentially says, he's holding out on you. How can you trust this kind of God? He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He just doesn't want any competition. And she believes the snake versus the loving God. And so he puts this little wedge between himself and God, like he's done for thousands of years. So now the ultimate, the taste, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. I had to wait till the third service. I had to keep the apple. And she also gave some to her husband. Yeah, yeah, that didn't work, did it? I'm, I'm not throwing it to Scott. Yeah, that didn't work. All right, what was the fruit? Three things if you're taking notes. It was tasty. It was good for food. It was tantalizing. It was a delight to the eyes. It was treasured. Tree was desired to make one wise. Have we seen this pattern? Do we see this pattern elsewhere in Scripture? Absolutely. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. It was tasty, lust of the flesh. It was tantalizing, the lust of the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise, the pride of life. See, same tactic. He just uses the same thing over and over again. He did it in the garden. Where he ref- we refer to it in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Some think that maybe Satan took the first bite or the serpent took the first bite. We don't know. But I have a salient question. Where is Adam during all of this interaction? He's right there. He's not out working and he kind of comes home from work going, what? You did what? You did- no, tell me that. No, he- he's not surprised. He's there. And this is where we get the idea of the Adam syndrome. He's standing by watching passively. 
He didn't do anything. He wasn't protective. He wasn't proactive. Some call it spineless abdication. If you were on a really twisted thought on this, some people think he was there, he's watching, he knew the command, he knows that if you eat this, you will surely die, and he's waiting to see if she does. How sick is that? Like, here, let my wife try it, you know? If she makes it, then I'll try it. But worse of all, she eats it, and she hands it to him, and, and he just eats it like, I'll do it. Do you see that we have reverberations throughout history in marriages with men who need to stand up, not be spineless, to protect your wife? Here's what he should have done, and I got to get rid of this. Here, catch it and just don't soil yourself. There we go. Just put it down. There we go. So the bottom line was, what should he have done? As soon as the conversation began, he should have stopped it. He should have said, time out here, serpent. Get out of here. I don't want to leave. Oh, I'm going to help you leave. He takes an oak stump, boom, hits a three-run shot over left field, which the Dodgers could have used a few more of. Um, (laughs) See, that's even a result of the fall. Oh, it isn't. Uh, It wasn't. He didn't stand up for her. He didn't lovingly protect her. Men, if I can call you to anything this morning is loving, servant-hearted protection and humility as you serve your families, protecting them, serving them, standing up for what's right, not being sucked into a philosophy that is so contrary to the way God designed us. And so there's confrontation in verses 7 to 13, and we see their deceit in verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. If this isn't so sad, it's comical. First of all, they become aware of something called nakedness, and for the first time, they are self-conscious. This, this age of innocence is over. You see, because in Genesis 2.25, it said that they were naked and not ashamed. There was outright joy. But something clicked that forever changed all of mankind because of that experience. And so they try to fix it. They try to, first of all, hide from God. I think that's kind of comical. He is the creator of the universe. He created every tree in that garden. He knew exactly where they were. And they're trying to hide behind a tree with these little fig leaves. You know, are you kidding me? Um, fig leaves. And so they, there was something inside them they know is broken. Larry Osborne says it was evidence of their terminal stupidity. They hid in the trees that God had made. It reminds me of a story about a young pastor who's out doing pastoral home visits, right? He's visiting his parishioners. He wants to connect with everybody in his congregation. He goes to a house, knocks on the door, and he can tell somebody's inside. He knows the lady's inside, but like she's not coming to the door. He knocks again. He sees some movement kind of, but oh well. So he takes his business card. On the back of it, he writes, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man comes to the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Leaves his, his business card on the door and goes, goes home. 
That next Sunday in the offering plate comes back that business card. The head usher brings it up to him between services. Said, Pastor, hey, we found this in the offering plate with your business card. He flips over the business card, and underneath his verse was this verse, Genesis 3.10. I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, before I was naked. <laughs> so if we go knocking on your door, you don't come, we'll, we know it's a Genesis 3.10 thing. So there's despair in verses 9 to 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, he is God. Does he not know where they are? Of course he knows where they are. He's giving Adam a chance to step up, to own it. And what does Adam say? Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, which shouldn't have been problematic. He'd heard that every day since he had been created. And I was afraid. Why is he afraid? Because I was naked, so I hid myself. And then God asked such a simple question. He says, who told you were naked? They didn't even know what naked was in that age of innocence. Have you eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat? Oh, baby. So in the first section, there's a cover-up. Now they're trying to hide from God. And by the way, when sin is exposed... Our natural inclination is to try to cover it up, to hide it, not to bring it in the open. What does 1 John 1, 9 says? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. And so that innocence is lost. I was thinking, what's the best illustration of innocence in our current day and age? How many of you have grandkids? Anybody? How many have kids, you know, two, three, four, five? parents. So I think the age of innocence in that era, I, I love it with my grandkids. When they are little, little, little bitties, what is the age of innocence? Running around naked in the sprinklers. And there's nothing better than grandpa with a, with a, a super soaker, or the, better yet, the hose, because that's volume. And, you know, and they're laughing, and they're running, and there's no fear, and there's no self-consciousness. That's all lost. It's lost. Or maybe they felt more like the kid who's in trouble and mom says, wait till your dad comes home. And dad's saying, hey, where are you? And you're hiding under your bed. I don't want to come out. No, we're going to have a talk. I was thinking when my son was young, one time he got in, got in trouble and Cheryl just said, hey, your dad's going to deal with that when you get home. And without even hesitating, he did this. No, mom, spank me now. And he grabbed his hand. <laughs> you take care of it. I want, I, want, I want to deal with you, mom. Not with Abba, daddy, father. We do the same thing, hiding from God. Number C there, their defense, verses 12 to 13. The man said, well, here's how it went down, God. The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the, 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 the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Or, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, by the way, I don't think he's in a boisterous, loud voice. It's a simple question. Eve, the Lord said to her, what is this that you've done? The woman said, well, the, the serpent deceived me and... What's the end result? And I ate it. 
The blame game, which we now experience in marriages across America, started right here. Everybody gets thrown under the bus, but here's what you can't miss. Who does Adam throw under the bus first? God. You gave me her. It's your problem. My helpmate, she got me into this mess. And we, gentlemen, have been blaming our wives for our issues for millennium. <laughs> I knew we couldn't sl- slide that in. Because of the Adam syndrome, because he was passive. But then, you know, he throws Eve under the bus, and then Eve throws the serpent under the bus. We all get thrown out of the, off the bus or under the bus. But you've seen that in families like that, the same kind of down the chain, you know, Dad comes home, it's been a bad day at work, and so he barks at his wife, and she gets offended, and they have a little tiff, and then she's irritated because the firstborn didn't set the table. They're like, get the table set. It's time for dinner. And he, he's all upset, so he picks on little sister, like, you're, you're supposed to help me. And she says, no, you didn't empty the dishwasher. And then the littlest one is just left like, you know, they yell at her, the two of them gang up on the third one, and... She takes it out on the dog, and then the dog goes after the cat, and then the poor bunny is done, you know, (laughs) just reverberates. That's kind of what happened, maybe. Well, what are the consequences in verses 14 to 19? All of creation is affected. That perfect paradise is lost. And yet what's not a laughing matter is that men and women suffer, and to this day we experience the heartache and we suffer those consequences as a result. So what are those consequences? There are three sets, one to the serpent, one to the woman, one to the man. Let's look at them. So to the serpent, and by the way, I'm going to hold out verse 15, which is to Satan specifically to the very end. So verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On the belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There's a curse on the serpent. Notice, we'll find out in a little bit, there's not a curse on man and woman. There's a consequence for sin, but there's not a curse. This serpent is cursed, and there's no do-over. From that that day on, the, the serpent's crawling on its belly. And the question is, why would this innocent animal take the brunt of God's righteous wrath about this behavior by Adam and Eve. And so what happens is I believe that the serpent becomes a permanent reminder to us of the degradation of Satan. It's a reminder of the fall, literally from standing upright to being on its belly, the fall, the fall that affected all of humanity and that ultimately would have to be solved by a redeemer, which we'll hear about soon. Think about Lucifer. He's fallen twice now. First, he's cast out of heaven, and now he's embodied this serpent, and and he's on the ground, and so he's he's definitely 0 for 2 in dealing with God. Snakes, by the way, in the Old Testament were considered unclean, right? Supposed to touch him, supposed to eat him. They will crawl on their belly. It's a visible symbol of the curse. And then dust you shall eat represents this idea of total defeat when... People sat in sackcloth and ashes, this sense of personal defeat. Well, what happened to the woman? 
Look at verse 16 to Eve. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. There are three specific consequences. The first is, ladies, you're going to have pain in labor or childbirth. Uh, ladies, I, I've never given birth. Um, is that true? Uh, are, are, has childbirth been painful? I think most of you would say it was painful. It's probably you know, worse than a root canal. There is no male equivalent to childbirth except potentially this. How many of you have ever passed a kidney stone? All right. If you've passed a kidney stone, I am told that is a similar kind of pain, to, which I did last March, uh, to childbirth. And my wife says, oh, no, contraire. By the way, we know that had men been charged with giving birth, the whole creation would be one-child families. <laughs> right? I hate pain. Ugh. All right. But here's something that's very cool. Uh, by the way, and I'm pretty sure every man in this audience, without ever saying it out loud, he's slightly sighing going, I am so glad I'm not a woman in this consequence, right? But our wives bear the brunt of labor and pain. But do you realize that childbirth is a typology of Christ? The Messiah will suffer greatly... And yet, on the third day, he'd be delivered. You spend 10 months in carrying a baby, ladies. You go through painful labor, but the result is the joy of that baby. How about the second coming? There's the birth pangs of the second coming, it says in the New Testament, before Israel is delivered from its enemies. And then lastly, Romans 8 says the whole world is groaning as we await the kingdom age. So, ladies, if it's any consolation, your pain in childbirth is reminding you that that the and is worth it when that child is born. And ultimately, God uses that illustration to say that he's going to provide a son who will make our pain all worth it. And his pain, he died on the cross for us for. Secondly, there will be a desire shall be contrary to your husband. In previous translations, it said that your desire will be for your husband. Your husband, your parents, are, are you're, you're, you're looking at husbands and going, oh, she's going to desire me? Uh-uh, not so much. This is your desire shall be contrary to your husband. In other words, this is the Eve syndrome where Adam is passive. The Eve syndrome is, ladies, you're going to desire to control, dominate, be the boss, be the man, so to speak, to usurp your husband's authority in a competitive way, not in a complementarian way. And that's a kind... Okay, both sides have now had their amen moments. Their amen moments. And by the way, I realize this is 23 verses of, oh my goodness, and we're going to have one verse. We're going to land the plane in verse 15 in a bit. So don't you think that we see it in, our, in relationships? There's a lot of power struggles in marriage, right? Some of you have experienced this. And so what happens? Once she wants to dominate her husband, what's the third consequence? And he shall rule over you. Mashal decided to make you his subordinate. And this is referring to spiritual authority. And so, men, our tendency is when our wives want to dominate or control us, then we put the hammer down. We want to dominate and say, not your way, it's my way. And we fight over stuff we should never be fighting over. Now, let's just be clear. That kind of response to our lives, regardless of how they come by it, 
gentlemen, isn't godly. We don't fight might. We don't push back. God's called us to be loving, kind, servant-oriented husbands. Love our wives like Christ loved the church. What did Christ do to the church? He died for us. We die to self. We die to our self-interest. I've said all along, gentlemen, if we are those kind of men, this issue of submission and respect and authority kind of goes out the window because what woman wouldn't lovingly want to be a part of that partnership with a man who says, get out of here, serpent. This is my wife. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to love her. I'm going to serve her. And I'll lead her in a way that provides a spiritual covering for our family. And sometimes, maybe if we're honest with ourselves, our tension, if you're married, is because that's not happening on our part, gentlemen. Now, this passage brings up other theological issues that we don't have time to deal with, but there are two views of this, and it is called complementarianism versus egalitarianism. If you don't know what those words mean and how it relates to spiritual authority and marriage, let's have a sidebar conversation, but that comes out in this text as well. Next, we get to the man or Adam. In his consequences, there are three consequences for him, verses 17 to 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain, uh, and you shall eat in pain all the days of your life. So there's a curse. First of all, the ground is cursed. So the serpent's cursed and the ground's cursed. The second law of thermodynamics, what does it say? All things are in a state of deterioration. It's not getting better. It doesn't mean because we're necessarily abusing the environment, but we just know things are breaking down. They're decaying. That's why we have natural disasters and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and all kinds of other things. That wasn't a part of the original design in the garden. It was a perfect temperature. Do you realize in the garden, it was a perfect temperature? There was no fighting about, turn the heat up, turn the air conditioning down, take those blankets off, put them on. None of that. Number two, work becomes hard. Verse 18, thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Some say this is a is a suggestion for veganism or vegetarianism that you got to eat the plants. Apparently, carnivore activity has not uh, been a part of their diet. But it's no longer easy. The world is more difficult to survive because of this. And this is an interesting thought. God says to them, essentially, because you didn't submit to me, the earth, who I gave you dominion over, is now not going to submit to you. It's going to be hard. doesn't mean that work is cursed, but it's going to be harder to accomplish our job of provider and protector, gentlemen. And he uses it with this illustration of thorns and thistles. Anybody ever got a, a rosebush thorn in your finger or you stepped on something and you're like, ah! I think this is really interesting. From that day forward, the garden begins... Outside the garden, it deteriorates, and we know that they'll be leaving the garden. And every time he stepped on a sharp rock or a thorn pierces his bare foot, it's a reminder that he forfeited paradise. 
because of one really bad choice. And he's going to pay the consequences for the rest of his life. And by the way, he had a long life, over 900 years of this. So by the way, by the time he dies, death is a blessing because he's been living in pain for 900 years. We live in pain for 70 to 100 years. And so that's the second consequence. Thirdly, he says, we will all die someday. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The whole life cycle, he was created out of dust, and his body, once he dies, will become dust. So it refers to physical death, but we know there's a greater symbolic analogy in that there's a spiritual death and separation. See, all of this says to us that we're going to die, all of us will die someday. That should not take you by surprise unless the rapture comes. And of course, there's different views of when you go during that seven-year tribulation, which we've talked about in the past. But there's a second death, which puts you at permanent enmity or separation or alienation from God, and we don't have to suffer that consequence, and God's going to provide a way. So death really was a blessing for them. Every time I wake up with a stiff back, I'm reminded I am deteriorating. Every time, you know, you stretch too much on a racquetball court, and you're like, oh, I'm getting older. That's part of the curse. The culmination, verses 20 to 24. Their deliverance, verse 20 to 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So after initially hiding from the, from the creator of the universe, Adam begins to rebuild what was broken. He, his wife's name is Eve, which is Hava in Hebrew. And he understands that ultimately through his wife's seed, not through his, there will be a Messiah that will come someday. And so belief precedes uh, provision. And so God makes provision. No longer they walk around with these fig leaves, but animals had to be sacrificed to cover them appropriately. And it's the foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that we'll see in Leviticus Leviticus and, and Numbers where that sacrificial lamb is the precursor to the ultimate lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. So it's the first animal sacrifice. And so nakedness is now a symbol of guilt and shame, and and we're not transparent. We hide from God. But we have an alternative, which we're going to hear about here in just a moment. Well, their dismissal in verses 22 to 24, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, like one of us, another reference to the Trinity, by the way. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life, that's a different tree, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, not just Adam, the whole family is gone. And some think that Cain might have been born by then and is old enough to see all this transpire and go, what are we doing here? By the way, our kids, that's a consequence of all. They see us misbehaving as parents, and they go, what is going on here? And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard 
the way to the tree of life. See, what would have happened had they eaten of that tree of life, they would have been immortal, encased in a body of sin, a body that's decaying, that there would be no relief from that toil and effort. It wasn't the idyllic paradise. It was paradise lost. And so actually, the eviction from the garden is an act of mercy and grace. It's a temple garden. And God, as an act of mercy, has them leave. Paradise isn't lost, however, because He's going to restore it through Jesus. 24 verses. I've spent 23 on consequences and separation and why all this bad stuff happens. Here's the takeaway. We're coming back to verse 15. And this is the consequence to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, or your offspring and her offspring. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible, and it's in a most unlikely place. It's embedded in the curse on Satan, and it's the only promise they're going to have for centuries. Isn't that awesome? It's called the Proto-Evangelium, or Evangelium in the Latin. And so this conflict isn't just spiritual. There's a physical consequence and there's a spiritual one. So what is this all about? Well, Satan says, God, he will bruise your head. In other words, there's going to be a fatal wound ultimately to Satan, like the boot on a rattlesnake's head, like David slaying Goliath through the head. And so we'll know that throughout the Scriptures now, for the rest of the Bible, there's this satanic attempt to destroy a messianic line because we know through the seed of a woman, a messiah will be born. Herod's attempt to knock off the kids in, in, in Palestine during those days wasn't just about worried about someone taking over the throne. It was a satanic attempt to, to end the messianic line. And so we know how it ends for Satan. According to Romans 16.20, will be, Satan will be crushed under God's feet. On the flip side, Satan is going to inflict a bruise. It's not a bad bruise. It's just not a, a life-threatening bruise. It's a wound, and we know that from Scripture, by his wounds, Jesus, we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. So Jesus will suffer for a time, but it's not fatal because he's going to rise again on the third day, and that's the ultimate essence of the gospel. Now, Scott and I, it's interesting, we were talking about this, so I entitled Humpty Dumpty Reverse the Curse. By the way, the curse is not reversed as it relates to Satan and the ground. We suffer those consequences today. But the consequences for us are reversed because he's given us hope. The plan is this, that mankind will have a a chance through a redeemer. They'll love God and hate Satan. And we're playing out a cosmic analogy for all of eternity. When you choose to trust God with your life, you're essentially saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you because Jesus is the new Adam, born of a woman, Galatians 4.4, Isaiah 7.14, and he conquers this consequence through his death on the cross.
And so this is an interesting thought. Before punishment is placed on their backs, embedded in this verse, in a curse on Satan, he places hope in their hearts. Because that's the God we serve. He is gracious. He's merciful. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. And yet Satan will always twist your thinking when tough things happen, that God doesn't love you, and he's not good, and why would you trust a God like this? Yet the clear teaching is, according to Romans 5.20, that grace might abound all the more. Now, the summary of all this is we know there's a tension here because in Genesis, it says we were made in his image. Psalm 139 says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. But on the other end of the spectrum, we are what? We are sinners by nature and choice. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. Romans 6.23, for the ways of sin is death or separation. That was the ultimate consequence in the garden was they lost that communion, that walking with God that was so natural. And now they're hiding from him in their shame and innocence is lost and morality becomes confused. And yet we've got to live with that tension, Christ follower. This past week, Tim Keller had this little post. I already had this in my notes, and he has this little daily Keller quote. And he says this, and we'll close with this as the band comes. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Friends, that's where we land the plane this morning, not in the fall but in the redemption, not in hiding from God, but openness with God, not being in fear of Him, but loving Him. And so ultimately, you have a choice this morning, don't you? Do you want to believe the lies, the distorted truths, the half-truths, the things that confuse us about God, or do we trust in His overall redemptive plan? That's a choice that I made to give my life to Christ years ago. And we'd love, if you've never made that decision for Christ today, that you would do it. Would you bow with me and close your eyes? Lord, even as we pray now and the band prepares to, to sing and lead us, maybe there's someone in this room that this passage has confused you for years and you never understood what this was all about and, and you know that you need a relationship with with the Lord God of the universe. If that's you today, we would love to share with you how you could do that. But more likely, there are some in this room that are Christ followers, but they've listened to the why. They've bought into it, and you've got hurts you're hanging on to. There's deceit that you're believing, and in that spiritual realm, you're believing things that aren't true of who you are. Maybe some of you are wrestling like, I can't be forgiven for my past. And yet God reversed that consequence. You don't have to live with shame. You don't have to live with regret. You don't have to live with guilt. Because there's a name above all names, Jesus Christ, that came to redeem all that was broken including our lives. 
If you're that person today, would you look at me? I just want you to feel and know God's love today all over this auditorium that you can experience that today. Amen? Well, that is the name. That is who's referred to in Genesis 3.15, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of your soul, the forgiver of your sin, the reason you have existence and have purpose in life. That's the kind of relationship we're talking about today. And again, I hope you have a fantastic week. God loves you and we love you. And if there's anything we can do for you, we'd love to talk to you. We have some people who will come up to pray for you today. And if you'd like prayer, come on up. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.